You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number 10. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Venzel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also Teaching Reading with Bob Books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. I have with me today both of the Scalay sisters, Misty Winkler and Pam Barnhill. Misty is a second-generation homeschooler with five kids and a love for projects. She writes about feeding a family at Simplified Pantry, about homeschooling and homemaking at Simply Convivial, and about organizing attitudes at Simplified Organization. Pam is an author, speaker, blogger at pambarnhill.com, and you'll probably recognize her from her two popular podcasts, Homeschool Snapshots and Your Morning Basket. Plus, she's got a brand new one, and if you haven't caught it yet, it's pretty good. It's called Homeschool Solutions. This episode is sponsored by Newbie Tuesday, the monthly newsletter for Charlotte Mason enthusiasts. Written with beginners in mind, Newbie Tuesday is deep enough to refresh experienced Charlotte Mason educators as well. Each issue is devoted to a single topic, some part of Charlotte Mason's philosophy. There's a letter from the editor, an article introducing the philosophical underpinnings, another article on the practical applications, and then yet another article on transitioning older students to the concept or practice. It's also packed with a bunch of resources for further reading around the web, in books, as well as practical tools for implementation. Best of all, it's free. So head on over to newbietuesday.net. That's N-E-W-B-I-E, newbietuesday.net. Today's show is our version of the which came first, the chicken or the egg conversation. In this case, though, it's which comes first, the principles or the practices. And how do we practice when we know that we don't know all we need to know? We go around and around in circles, drawing on folks like James K.A. Smith, Cindy Rollins, Karen Glass, and more. In the end, we made our peace with the issue, and we hope you can, too. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. All right. Well, let's start off with our Scule RDA. So who wants to go first? I will. All right. Okay. So right now I'm reading a book. Well, I'm rereading it. Uh, It's called Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. Okay. This is funny, Misty, because I saw Crazy Busy on the sheet and I thought, She's going to come here with excuses as to why she doesn't have a spell ARDA because she's been really busy. <laughs> I was like, darn, why didn't I think of that? I'm crazy busy. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I didn't it's actually interrupt. a book. <laughs> it's actually a book. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> and um, I'm rereading it because a fr- my friend that I read books with occasionally a few times a year. She was ready to do another discussion and she said she wanted a book on not time management so much as, you know, how do we know whether or not we are balancing 
the right amount of work and then rest and what should rest in our lives look like. So really, Hmm. you know, a pretty timely topic. It's a scole, really. But I think she even came right out and said, I'm not going to read Leisure, The Basis of Culture. (laughs) 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 Nice. So I suggested Crazy Busy. So I've read it before, and it's a little book about the size of Leisure, The Basis of Culture, but very easy to read and very to the point. I really like Kevin DeYoung's style. One of the quotes that I wrote down uh, was, if the worries of life don't swamp us, the upkeep will. (laughs) Oh, my word. Yes. And then um, this is just in the second chapter, but Uh, The quote I wrote down was, the seed of God's word won't grow to fruitfulness without pruning for rest, quiet, and calm. Nice. We need to plan margin into our lives so that we have time. In that paragraph, he was kind of talking about how if we don't have just times where we can think and process and pray, then the difficult life circumstances or trials that we're going through, we don't necessarily learn from them. If our life is just always noisy and always go, go, go. Yeah. I've thought about even that just in regard to a rushed school day, that when there's no time to process, then very little seems like it sinks in. Yeah, exactly. So I thought this was a good, it has that scole in there without saying the word scole and being very easy to read. Okay, I'm going next. Oh, yeah, go for it. Okay, so um, you might know that I was at the Cersei conference last week. (laughs) Alert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why I am doing this podcast in my sleep because I am still not recovered yet. Um, the day I got back, I did not, I stayed in my pajamas the whole day. So, yeah. And so I'm still recovering. But I met a gentleman and I was just completely, completely blown away. Cause, like, you know, the whole Cersei conference could be your school RDA. But I met a man named James Daniels. Um, and unfortunately, Huh? Name dropping. Name dropping. Really? You know what? Though the really sad thing is, is I don't think there's an online presence at all that I can point anybody to. I will look, Brandy, and if there is, we'll drop a link in the show notes. But I really don't think there is. I think he writes for Cersei every once in a while. Yeah, he probably does. So maybe we could link to some of his Cersei stuff. But I don't think I've noticed a a separate website for him or anything. I think you're right. Right. And yes, just in all the conversation and people tagging and stuff, I don't like think he's on Facebook or anything like that. So I think there's a very slim online presence. Maybe just oh, you mean like Misty? Like he's not on Facebook like Misty's. Yeah, not on Facebook like Misty. (laughs) Not to point fingers, but anyway. But I don't think he's anywhere else either. So you know. Um, But anyway, okay. So I have quotes. So I only got to go to one of his sessions and uh, it was just fabulous. I have like 12 pages of notes just from his session alone. Fear is not solved by determination. That was one I loved. Hmm. Hmm. And then he says, if, okay, so this was just like great for me, uh, given what I do. But he says, if you don't have a clear direction of where you are going, then you start trying to do too much. So when we think about doing too much in our homeschool, the reason is because we don't have a clear direction of where we Mm. are going. And I thought about that. I thought about all the homeschool moms out there, myself included, who like over plan and just fill our plates with all these different subjects and three or four math curriculums. And we like to call them supplements, you know, and things (laughs) like that. But honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, and we really look at why we're doing this, it's because we don't really know where we're going. 
And so one of the questions he asked is, which big ideas and skills should they know by the end of the year? This is what we should ask of our student. Which big ideas and skills should they know by the end of the year? And I kind of start that and like put a lot of arrows around it and put start lesson planning here. Oh, you know, it's kind of like goals and vision, which is what I do in plan your year where you you start with your vision and your goals. It brought it home to me that that's a good place to start. And then uh, he had a very unique way of looking at the liberal arts, you know, because liberal arts really kind of uh, scares a lot of us. We're like, exactly what is it? You know, grammar, logic, rhetoric and the four of the quadrivium and all of those things. But he says that the liberal arts are basically a list of skills and habits that we need to be fully human. He said they're not ages and stages. He said you need to think of liberal arts like a buffet like a feast of skills that you can use to be fully human. And so they're more categories than they are stages. You're not doing one and then moving to the next. You can actually pull from any of those at any given. I mean, I could go on and on. He, he listed out some of the skills of grammar and logic and rhetoric. But I just thought that was interesting. And he said about that statement that the liberal arts are a list of skills and habits. We need to be fully human. He said that is the only continuity in classical education from the Hebrews to the Greeks to the Romans to today. So wow, totally blown away by him. I wish I could have heard that. It'll be in the Circe conference talk. There's a conference talk I'm buying. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) If you only buy one. Yeah, it it was (laughs) awesome. It was awesome. So that's my RDA. Oh, love it. Mine. Hey, we have some variety. It's not all books this time. So I have actually been feeling crazy busy. I don't know that I'm actually crazy busy. I. It's possible I just have some time management problems. <laughs> um, but be that as it may, I felt a little overwhelmed the last couple of weeks. And so between that and my Fitbit, I have, I have a Fitbit. And it introduced this new little thing in the app. I don't know if you guys have noticed that where it tells you if you've gotten activity throughout each hour. Yes. You guys notice that? Mm-hmm. I really like that. They're encouraging you to get up and get 250 steps every hour. I think the default is between the hours of nine and five. I'm assuming that's because they're thinking, you know, people are at work and they should get up <laughs> every hour because <laughs> otherwise they're literally sitting there from nine to five, which of course is not the case with homeschool moms. But I'm in planning season here. And so I am sitting down a lot more. And so for me, though, the walk alone isn't very, I don't know if refreshing is the word, but I just have started where I'm making myself get up every hour and get those minimum of 250 steps. And I'm turning on a podcast. So it might take me all day to say get through an episode of Oh, I think right now I'm listening to um, the latest episode from the Center for Lit team. But it's so refreshing to just get up and kind of let all of the school planning, organizing, all of that stuff fall off for, let's say, 10 minutes or something. Listen to some good ideas. (laughs) I feel like I come back and I'm ready to start all over again for another, you know, 45 minutes or so. So anyway, it's just been it's been very refreshing. And I feel like if I was to pick up a book, if I I was to tell myself, okay, I'm going to take a break every hour and pick up a book, the problem is I would have trouble putting the book down. Mm. Mm-hmm. But with this, because it tells me, okay, you logged your 250 steps or whatever. So I know I got my time in. You don't mind stopping getting steps? Is that what you're saying? You're, you're like waiting to stop getting <laughs> steps? <laughs> well, not exactly. I, I wouldn't say. Yeah. Um, you can interpret that how you <laughs> But anyway... It's been nice because I feel like it's keeping my sanity hat on because I almost lost it. (laughs) There we go. 
And that's what Scalia is for, right? Well, and I think the exercise helps, of course. Right. The only thing that would make it better was if I actually walked outside. So then I was doing good ideas and exercise and nature. Right. It's like 110 degrees outside at your house right now, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I mean, 104. Yeah. Uh, You know, when when you get over 100, I think all of the little extra degrees are kind of academic. It's true. It's true. (laughs) So needless to say, I'm walking inside. Right over the air conditioning vent. Yeah, really. Seriously. (laughs) Ah. All right. So that one's mine. So now, why don't we go ahead and move on to our conversation for today. And Pam, I was hoping that you would introduce this. Number one, because this is your first episode back for season two. Because the last one was just Misty and me together. But also because I know this topic is very near and dear to your heart. And it's something you've been thinking about a lot. And I think it was your idea. Go ahead and tell us why, well, what we're talking about and why. (laughs) Okay, so what we're talking about today is the relationship between the principles or understanding or having a really good understanding of the principles or philosophy of a certain method of education. And I think those of us here identify as either classical or Charlotte Mason or some mixture of the two. And the practices or the methods of that philosophy of education. And it struck me, it's really hard for homeschool moms coming into this So they get interested about a certain topic, about a certain method or educational philosophy, and they start, you know, maybe soaking up the wisdom. Maybe they go to a convention or something like that, and they fall into a talk by Dr. Perrin or Martin Cawthorn or somebody, and they're just soaking up all of this wisdom. And they're like, okay, I want to take this and do something with it in my homeschool. And it's hard to know where to start. Then other people come at it from a different direction. You know, somebody might be cruising along and they're, they come across something, you know, like me with morning time. I found morning time and I didn't really, and this was years ago, didn't really understand a whole lot of the philosophy behind it. I thought, oh, this just sounds cool. You know, I'm just going to do this with my kids because it sounds really neat to have them all sitting there together doing all these beautiful things that I think set us apart from a different kind of education from, say, the public school education I had as a kid. So I wanted to do these things, but I didn't really understand the philosophy behind them. So what is the relationship behind the principles and the practices? Which ones should come first? And are there some dangers in doing one and not doing the other? So that's the question. Maybe the best place to start the conversation is to start by talking about some of those dangers. So what are the dangers of sitting there studying the philosophy for two or three years and never doing any of the practices, never putting any of it in practice because you're kind of maybe a perfectionist, not that any of us can relate to that, and you want to get it just right before you start to practice it? So what are some of those dangers? Well, that's kind of paralyzing, right? I mean, you could actually not teach your kids anything while you're waiting to perfect your philosophy or something. Not saying anyone has done that before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's pretty easy to just go into that world of books and world of ideas and film notebooks and think big thoughts and then just do whatever in your day. And applying them is hard, but just Thinking grand thoughts can be kind of fun in and of itself. I think it's totally possible to just spend your time kind of thinking and never doing. And then what is the good of that? You're not really using that information or doing anything with it. It's not making a difference in your life. And you have to do something on Monday. I mean, you have to do something on Monday. So either you're going to do some things based on these 
half-formed philosophies, or you're going to do utilitarian things, other things, things that you grow up with that are easy for you that are not helpful either, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, I totally had years where I was doing way more reading and thinking than I do now, really. But uh, what we were doing in our day was really a lot more like unschooling. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so is there a greater danger in studying this philosophy because you want to get it right and not putting it half formed into practice? Is that a bigger danger? Or is it a bigger danger to put it half formed into practice when you don't understand the philosophy behind it? I wonder if that depends on the person's personality. I'm just thinking, okay, because- want to go down that rabbit hole? <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe not. <laughs> But for the sake of argument, I was just thinking that, for example, I'm thinking of a specific child I have that's very, very rules focused. So knowing the practices without knowing the principles would lead to a type of slavery for that particular child because of that child's tendencies, almost like interpreting that the practices are the principles. This is how we do it. Right. Because this is how we do it. Because, you know, I mean, it's like self-referential. And so I see that in that particular person, but I'm thinking like, but then when I back up and look at the rest of my family, I wouldn't necessarily say that it was equally dangerous for them because they're a little bit more free thinking anyway, and they're not as bound to the rules. And does that make any sense? Right. So if you have a rules oriented personality, and this is like a whole different topic. I think there, this happens quite a bit in some different homeschooling philosophies where the practices almost become rules that you're living by. So I can remember my conversation with Brandy about, and I bring this up every time, (laughs) it probably gets you in trouble, (laughs) about Charlotte Mason, (laughs) where you saying, if there's a brand new method, you didn't say it exactly like this, this is my paraphrase, but if there's a brand new method that were to fall out of the sky that Charlotte Mason never used, but it is in line with her 20 principles, then a Charlotte Mason mother can use that. And it is Charlotte Mason, even if it's something she never did. That was just, that was like, my head exploded. I mean, seriously, when you said that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get I am, <laughs> I know. But it's so cool for you. That's so freeing for you to say that because so often practices become the whole sum total of the education. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that happens all of the time. I mean, I feel like when I talk to classroom teachers coming out of the classroom and now trying to homeschool their children, one of the things I hear over and over, they didn't really get a philosophy. They got practices when they were in school. Mm -hmm. For the most part, I've also talked to a couple of teachers that went to what sounds like really awesome kind of old fashioned educational colleges. And that was not the case. But for the vast majority of the moms I've talked to coming out of the classroom, because they didn't get principles and they got practices, well, to some extent, that might actually be good because now they're free to learn from the classical tradition without maybe like baggage of John Dewey or that kind of thing. But so they were taught one degree off. They weren't taught Dewey. They were taught practice. But they don't feel very empowered to even make changes as they're adjusting to life in the homeschool. Because they know this one way to do things, and that's just how you do it. And it's Mm -hmm. a big struggle. Well, and a lot of times people do equate the different methods of education with the things that are typically done. So if that's classical, that means classical education is chanting a bunch of facts, and you learn logic in middle school, and rhetoric, whatever that means later on at some point in the you know, that we can't even think about 
And mostly let's just do those chants and then we're doing classical education. Or Charlotte Mason is like, okay, then we're just going to read books and narrate. And so as long as we're doing that, then it's Charlotte Mason. Right. Oh, absolutely. And nature study, of course. Get outside. Then check check those boxes and there you go. <laughs> right. That actually reminds me of a conversation. I had someone come up and ask me about choosing Latin versus Greek and just struggling with that decision. And, and in the middle of that, I realized it was sort of this kind of a thing where Latin was a practice of classical education. Therefore, she should do it. But Greek was actually a language she knew. So what I didn't say, and I wished I had said was something that Jennifer Dow said to me, like within 24 hours after this. And I was like, why couldn't you say this 48 hours ago? So I could have used it. (laughs) But it was something along the lines of classical education is a search for truth. And all these things are our tools. So Latin is wonderful, but we don't do Latin just to go through some sort of grind, right? Right. We learn Latin so that we can read some of the best that has been thought and said in the original language, because there's something to reading it in the original. And so my opinion was, you know, Latin and Greek, most of what is worth reading was written in one of those two languages, at least when you go back 500 years and then beyond that. So who cares which language we choose? (laughs) Like, I feel like there's just really practical reasons for doing Latin. But if you already know Greek, then why not? But it was just interesting, because I felt like the catch was because classical education equals learning Latin. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it was defined Mm -hmm. by that practice. She didn't have the principle of classical education as a search for truth and Latin is a possible tool that we could use to do that, which would mean Greek is also a possible tool that we could use to do that, right? Right. So you can make better decisions if you understand, if you have a why instead of just a list of things to do. Yes, because she is feeling guilty. I'm like, you're feeling guilty about teaching your kids Greek. That's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I wish my native language were a tool, so uh, (laughs) it would be a lot easier. (laughs) Well, it is. You can read Shakespeare, right? So there you go. That's true. There you go. People have to learn English just so they can read Shakespeare. So (laughs) you are blessed. (laughs) Very true. Okay, I'll take it. (laughs) Okay, so we've kind of talked about some of the dangers of starting with, well, I think we've talked about both. We've talked about the dangers of being a perfectionist of some kind or, you know, I've got to know all of this stuff. And here's the other thing about this. I bet that there are people out there who would tell you, I'm not going to put words in Dr. Perrin's mouth, but he's been studying this stuff for (laughs) years and years. And he would probably tell you he's only begun to scratch the surface of this. So if you sit around and wait until you know it all to start using this with your children, I mean, you're probably going to be past your great grandchildren before you can even start, (laughs) you know? Well, and two, I think there's something to doing it while learning it. I think that actually doing it helps you understand the principles, that they work together kind of hand in hand at the same time, that you can't just have all theoretical and then suddenly you'll hit some enlightened moment where suddenly you'll know what to do. (laughs) It's like kind of trying to find your way and you can't really do that until you start doing it. And moving forward. Right. I would pay good money for that moment. I would write a check right now of a large sum if if somebody could guarantee me that moment where I knew exactly what to do. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's such a struggle. But I think you're exactly right. Misty, what you described was, I would say, exactly my experience, specifically in figuring out Charlotte Mason. I remember when my oldest was, I want to say he had just turned four. 
because I think my second born child was like six months old or so. I remember sitting around and reading Home Education, which is Charlotte Mason's first volume. And most of it sounded like blah, blah, blah. Like I mean, it just... Well, first of all, I was really tired, but also my like my reading level was not up there anymore because I hadn't really read anything since he was born. He was like four. (laughs) Most of it went in one ear and out the other, but I caught that we should be outside. So we went outside and then I read the book again. (laughs) (laughs) So I did the one thing, right? I learned one thing. And so I did that. And so then I started reading the book again. And then at that point, I caught a few more things and we started doing that. And so I felt like it was totally synergistic. So I'm reading and I don't worry about the fact that I didn't catch 99% of what was in the book. (laughs) I just tried to apply the one thing I did get. And then we moved forward from that. And that kept happening. And it was interesting because as I was preparing for this, I noticed a place in Norms and Nobility where David Hicks basically calls this idea of learning something and then practicing it as taking responsibility for what we know. And I was thinking, Mm. oh, that's very interesting because I read that whole book, but I only came away knowing one thing, which is that we should be outside more. I was able to take responsibility for that one thing, right? So we started being outside more. I was thinking that that idea of taking responsibility for what we know versus all that we've read might be helpful. So we act on the one or two things that we know. We don't worry about everything we don't know, but then we just make a commitment to keep taking responsibility for what we know in the future, right? Right. In in Norms and Nobility, doesn't he also say that we're supposed to be acting in accordance with what we know? So it's not just knowing or having to find out. It always comes back to, are you acting in accordance with what you know? Like they have to go together. Yeah, he does say that. And then, okay, so I would ask you guys, what is it? This is maybe sort of off topic, but what, what is it? What do we call it? If we know something and don't act on it. Hypocrisy? <laughs> Negligence? Yeah. I, I was thinking maybe even rebellion, depending. Laziness. Yeah. It was, it was an interesting thought, but to come back full circle to what Pam was saying, but we still have to have something to do on Monday morning. So how do we balance these things? Because we don't know everything, but let's say school starts in three weeks. What do you do? How, how do you actually live out the principle of, I have to practice not knowing all the principles? <laughs> You know, I think what we've got to do is put our trust in God. So let's say we're studying the philosophy of something. And with this half form philosophy, we have to have something to do on Monday morning. So we're starting to put some of these things into practice. But we're we're being faithful to what he's called us to do. And we're continuing to learn. And so we may change our methods. Things may morph as the years go on. And I don't think that we're going to ruin anybody by doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. That would make us way too powerful if we were to think that we could just destroy our children's lives by choosing the wrong math curriculum or something. Right. Or I think whatever we're starting in three weeks is what we are going to be doing for the next 12 years. That there isn't going to be maturing and growing and changing along the way. Yes, that just makes me think of, uh, it's a quote from Cindy's new book, uh, Mere Motherhood. And she says, God is real. He is there. He doesn't just love your children. He loves you. I have been young and now I am old. I have not seen the righteous forsaken. And so, okay, so maybe it was not in this exact context, but I think it's the same thing. He is not going to forsake the righteous. So even if you're doing exactly the wrong thing in your half-formed understanding of these principles, he's not Mm going to forsake you, you know. As long as you keep learning and adjusting, it's all going to come out okay in the end. Yeah, it's not all on you. Yeah. Right. Because we have to do something on Monday morning. (laughs) Yes, we do.
maybe a practical piece of advice. And I know you're shocked that I'm the one giving practical advice here, but um, maybe like a practical piece of advice is if you're very much starting out, like this is going to be day one and you really feel like you don't know anything, then I think that calls for maybe a low investment curriculum. The reason why I say that is because I think if we go out and spend $1,000 on a curriculum that we end up hating, (laughs) it's very hard to make adjustments because we're so invested in it. Mm -hmm. So I know we were kind of brainstorming, Pam, yesterday in a kind of related conversation, but about, you know, what do we do for people who are just like, (gasps) I just pulled my child from public school and I don't know anything and I don't feel equipped and I don't feel... and. I just kept coming back to this idea of we need to have something to do on Monday morning, but we need to use something that's very low investment so that we're not married to it, so that we have the freedom to grow and change, especially throughout that first year when there's so much learning that takes place. You know, you're even just becoming more familiar with your children and what works for them. Yes. And you're talking about, you said so much learning takes place and you're not talking about the fact that your first year of homeschooling is going to be the one where your kids learn the most. (laughs) (laughs) No, mom is learning the most. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, a library card, that's one of the cheapest curriculum investments out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really hard to convince people to do that, that, you know, their first year of homeschooling is probably best spent with a $3 workbook from the dollar store for math and a library card. Man, you got ripped off if you paid $3 for the dollar store workbook. Well, you know, I was going to mention (laughs) names. They're supposed to be $1. (laughs) (laughs) But it is very difficult. Basically, we're telling people, I think what I'm hearing us say here is that it's okay to start with principles, even if your philosophy is half formed, as long as you are continuing to study the philosophy. So if that is the case, is it possible that by somehow doing these practices, we're going to come to a better understanding of philosophy? So let's take this conversation just a little further. Could we almost say that sometimes you need to do the practices in order to come to a better understanding of the philosophy? Yeah, that reminds me of Desiring the Kingdom um, by James K.A. Smith, where he really talks in there about how it's what you're doing that is shaping your understanding. It's not just Mm -hmm. understanding that shapes practice, which does happen, but the influence that our actions and what we're doing, especially what we do repeatedly, the influence that has on what we believe and desire is even stronger. What we're doing, especially what we're doing repeatedly, which a school day is <laughs> a lot of the same things happen every day. That's something that we repeatedly right. do. And those things that we repeatedly do are very influential to what we believe and think. So even if we, if we just have pulled out nature study, let's let's go back to the example that we were giving earlier that, you know, I'm checking the Charlotte Mason boxes because I'm doing nature study. So even if I'm doing nature study without a full understanding of the philosophy behind nature study, but I'm just going out and doing it to be able to check off that box and say I'm a Charlotte Mason homeschooler, it's still shaping my understanding in the long run. Oh, yeah, I, I would so. say so. Yeah, I think like for myself and nature study is a great example because I feel like I have never done a real Charlotte Mason nature study the way that she lays it out or what she would, what I'm supposed to be doing. I still feel like that's a really foggy idea in my head of what I'm actually supposed to be doing. But I know this much. I know we're supposed to be outside a lot. And I know that sometimes we're supposed to draw something and that helps you pay attention. So we spend more time outside and every once in a while we draw something from outside. 
it's still been a beautiful part of our homeschooling that has gradually, and I mean, very gradually, like over the course of five years, developed and grown and built tension and things, even though I still feel very shaky on what I'm supposed to be doing, (laughs) what it's supposed to look like. I still feel like I don't really know that. (laughs) Yeah. But you feel like you have seen the benefit. But I have seen the benefit. And it's something that we'll continue to do and that continues to grow the more we do it. This idea that we can understand a principle without a practice, like let's turn it on its head, is kind of an interesting thing. Because when I read books that are purely theoretical, and they give no examples of how this might actually work out in practice, that is when it's the hardest to understand the principle, in my opinion. And so... I think what I heard you asking, Pam, was basically like, do the practices actually help us understand the principles? I'm thinking like, it's almost the same as giving us an an example. If I'm reading a book, and it says, here's a principle, and then it tells me a story about how one person incarnated that principle, or even better, gives me like three examples, then I come back and say, oh, I get this, I get the principle, because I saw these multiple incarnations of the principle. Mm -hmm. And Maybe in a, let's say like a lecture situation, we can give a principle. But then if I get the chance to incarnate that principle, I come to an understanding way faster. A good example would be when I was at the Ambleside Online Conference in May. Uh, who, what, oh, it was Karen Glass. It was Karen Glass. Okay, so she talked about doing picture study. And she was trying to explain how philosophy shapes how you do picture study. So she divided the room into two groups. So she didn't just say, this is how one group would do it and this is how another, or or, this is how one group views it philosophically and this is how another group views it philosophically. She actually had us practice it. And so she divided the room into two groups and she had one of them practice it this way and the other group practice it the other way. And everybody walked away understanding the principle behind it. And it was really, really fascinating. And I was thinking that was like the fastest way to understanding was to have them practice it right there. Right. Instead of just talking about the difference between analytical and poetic mode, she actually had you do both. Exactly. Instead of just explaining the difference and talking about how they're different, just kind of talking, she really brought it home. You actually did it and saw what it meant in a very different way. Yeah. Jennifer Dow says, um, everything needs an embodied type. Hmm. That in order for us to understand something, everything needs an embodied type. And actually, at the conference last week, Andrew Kern was talking to us about mimetic teaching. And, you know, the fifth step of that, you know, so there's invitation, there's you're presenting a type, which they perceive with their senses, you compare, the student expresses the truth. And then the fifth one is that the student must embody or apply a new artifact. So, so they must take this philosophy that they've learned and, su- and apply it in some way. That's kind of the last step in this mimetic teaching is that your student must go out and do this in order for them to fully be taught what you're trying to mm. teach them. So with nature study or the picture study, or yes, even mimetic teaching was even one example I was thinking of in my own head, where it's something that when you're just talking about it, sounds really complicated and esoteric and like, okay, I think I understand all those words and how you put them together, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. But then when you actually see someone else doing, just doing it without talking about it, just doing it, then Mm -hmm. you say, oh, 
oh, I get it now. Just like, you know, going out and doing nature study, I can read about doing nature study and I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I get it, if I'm doing it right. Whereas if you just get out and you go on a nature walk with someone, then you're like, oh, that's all it is? We can we can do this. You know, it, it often sounds yeah. more complicated and abstract when you've only heard the principles talked about, but when you see someone doing it or you listen to stories of examples or, you know, a group of moms sharing what they do, you get that vision of what it's supposed to look like. And you say, oh, we can do that. Now I can really see it because I've seen it modeled. So basically what we're saying is we need more opportunities in the homeschool community, especially classical Charlotte Mason communities that we're a part of where people are struggling to understand these philosophies. We need the kind of philosophical education, which I think we get in a lot of places, but we also need a lot more models and opportunities for moms to go in as the student and practice under a master teacher. Yes. You know what we've started doing locally is that we're setting summer aside for basically immersion sessions. In June, I did a Plutarch lesson with our group. So they showed up and they were the students in my class and they had to narrate and they had to answer, you know, we used Ann White's Plutarch primer. They had to answer the questions. They did the vocabulary stuff at the beginning. I mean, the whole thing. You know, I told them kind of this is how I do a class and this is why. So I didn't just straight do the lesson. But I felt like, you know, so many people were intimidated by Plutarch because he sounds so fancy. And by the end, everyone could envision themselves doing that. I mean, you have the tool, you have the book, you don't have to think up the lessons for yourself or anything. So how to go through it. And then uh, next week, we're doing uh, Shakespeare. So the gal who teaches Shakespeare at a local co-op is going to come and do a lesson with us. And anyway, but so we've just gotten to where we're doing the reading during the school year. And then we're going to use the summer months for immersions. I love that. That's awesome. Just really super helpful. It is because I think the difficulty, I think the roadblock for us is not being able to imagine what it's supposed to look like and that kind of terrifying us and stopping us from moving forward is we've never done it before. We've never seen it done before. And we can read or hear about the theory and the why and all of that, but then we don't know what it looks like. And so we don't know if what we're doing is the right thing or not. And so having those models or examples is what we need because we need to be able to imagine ourselves doing it. So I'm thinking back on like narration, you know, this is something I've read about for years and wanted to do in my homeschool for years, and I've stopped and started for years. So it was kind of this perfect storm of things that came together for me. I interviewed um, Sonia Schaefer back in January for the Your Morning Basket podcast about narration. And I have to tell you, it excited me just hearing her talk about it. And it was a very nitty gritty conversation about how it could be done. And she answered all of my kind of hard practical questions questions about narration. And there was a lot of good information there. And so, you know, I turn off the interview and I still didn't quite put it into practice in my home. I'm thinking about it. You know, and I'm thinking she makes it sound so easy. Um, there might have even been a false start. I'm trying to remember. Might have even false started. So fast forward about a month later and I'm reading Consider This by Karen Glass, um, my new BFF from last week. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> it's you know yeah, surprise Karen um, <laughs> but I can't, I'm reading this in the book uh, consider this and there wasn't practicals about narration in there it was this philosophical reasoning these principles behind narration and I got so convicted hmm. so convicted by the principles that she was talking about I went back to Sonia's podcast and listened again and made myself a plan for how I was going to make this work in my home. And from that point to the end of the school year, we did do narration. So, mm-hmm. you know, as much as I got excited by the practicals thinking, okay, this is such great information, and it really was, and now I can do this, it took me going back and being convicted again by the principles in order to really make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You bring up a good point in that the practices can only carry us so far. If we don't have this underlying why that is a conviction of something that is true, then it's really easy to quit when things get hard. I know one of the things that has concerned me in my local community is there are a lot of people pulling their children right now from the public schools for a variety of reasons. We have new vaccine laws. We have some new state standards that are very controversial. There's a lot of things going on. And so there are people pulling their kids, but they don't have this underlying, you know, a lot of us that have already been homeschooling, we have this underlying why of, I have this vision for education. I have this vision of something I want for my children. They have a vision of what they don't want, right? And that's why Mm. they're pulling their kids. But that doesn't carry you through the hard day. I don't think. Mm -hmm. I don't think, Mm -hmm. you know, my child was bullied at that school, to give another example, is going to carry me through this horrible day where I feel like I can't teach math and grammar and my child had an attitude problem. And what carries me through the hard days are those underlying principles that are, you know, we do this for these reasons. And ultimately, the principle, well, first of all, that I'm called to do this, I do feel a conviction that our family specifically called to this, but also that the hard times and how we handle hard times is part of the process. Like that in itself is a principle. This hard time is not a dead end. It's an opportunity for us to learn how to handle our times. And so <laughs> I think it's what like what you were saying with this whole you felt this conviction from the principles sounds to me like you got your why that would carry you through the bumps of learning to do it or the kids that don't want to do it or, you know, whatever it was that came up it happens for everybody. You know, what carries us through? It's the why. Yeah, we had that with morning time. We've been doing morning time since my oldest was in kindergarten. And the first few years were amazing and wonderful. And then we hit the few years where we had kind of middle elementary on down to a toddler and a baby. And morning time was just crazy time. Trying to contain a circus, Mm -hmm. being tired, and just it did not feel beautiful (laughs) at all. (laughs) And it was hard. And it was... (laughs) Not what I envisioned morning time to be or what I thought that it was supposed to be, but I kept doing it because Cindy said it was the thing that her worst year was the year she didn't do it. And it was the thing she was most grateful for (laughs) all through the end. And I believed that on principle, you know, kind of on paper and in theory, I believed that. And so I was going to act on that belief rather than on just what I saw in front of me. I believed that if I stuck it out, it would be worth it you know, that hard time pass it, that was the right thing to do. And I'm so glad that we did stick with it and didn't just drop it when it got hard. Yeah. How about we end with one of these quotes that I have from James K.A. Smith? Okay, yeah, do it. This is more, you know, he's not talking about education specifically, but about just lifestyle and discipleship, which really when you're homeschooling, it's all Mm. kind of one piece. It's all wrapped up together. 
Being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrines and beliefs into your head in order to guarantee proper behavior, like first one and then the other, but rather it's a matter of the kind of person who loves rightly. And the, the paragraph mm. goes on to say how we're, we become those kind of people by our practices. And of course, the practices that we choose are influenced by our beliefs, and then they in turn influence those beliefs. It's kind of, it's just this cycle. Mm. It's that synergy. Yeah, yeah. An education then is a constellation of practices, rituals, and routines that inculcates a particular vision of the good life by inscribing or infusing that vision into the heart the gut by means of material embodied practices. I love yeah. that. Oh, so good. That was a good one to end with. You're right. So let's get into some practices. Yeah, let's get into our nitty gritty <laughs> homeschool question, which we're not going to talk about the philosophy of commonplace. This is about commonplacing. Um, we're not going to talk about the philosophy. We're just going to talk about how it's done and we'll have to do philosophy some other time. But this one is from Amanda Venema and I will play it right now. Hi there, this is Amanda Venema from hisnewday.com, and I have a question for you ladies. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about commonplacing and when you introduce it to your kids and how do you go about doing that? What does it look like on a weekly basis once they do start commonplacing? If you could just share a little bit of information about that, I would be very grateful. Does anybody want to take a stab at this? Well, first, I think it's important to say that commonplacing isn't something that you start in kindergarten. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good point. So, you know, it's it's a middle school type practice. Right. And beyond. We are just starting <laughs> it. Yeah. From, from middle school up. <laughs> so tell um, us how you're doing it, Misty. We are just starting this year with my oldest in eighth grade. So I have not done this up until this year in eighth grade. And we've only barely started because this is just our second week of school. And we'll have a literature class starting in the fall where we'll be doing more. But for right now, he just has an assignment. He has a commonplace notebook, which is just a spiral notebook. And part of his history assignment is to choose a favorite sentence from his history reading. And he's reading Churchill, the history of the English speaking people. He writes one favorite quote in his notebook. Once a week. That's it. Very simple and easy to do. <laughs> Very complicated. <yeah. laughs> and I told him, you know, the first the first week I told him, you know, it can be a quote that you thought it was really well written and you liked the style of it. It can be a favorite quote because of the information that it has. Or if he has some kind of idea that you thought was interesting, you have to write down one quote and for whatever reason you want to. So he picked a good one. Or, you know, he's only done it once now so far. I like but Brandy, that. I know you've been doing it for quite some time. I have been. I'm trying to think. I'm pretty sure it was sixth grade that we kind of started. I had kind of an easing into this process. So in sixth grade, I bought a nice little journal. And for the sixth grade year, I think for the whole year, it was, we called it actually the poetry journal is what we called it. And so we read poetry pretty much every day at our house. Each student has their poet that they're reading through for each term. And for that year, my son was just supposed to pick his favorite poem from the week. And I didn't even have him copy it at that age. If he wanted to, he could just cut it out because I was using printouts at the time. He could just cut it out and actually paste it into his journal. So it's like craft time. Yeah, really. That's about as crafty as it gets at my house. 
there you have it. Craft time with Brandy. Um, and so part of that was because I, I wasn't quite ready to stop copy work, but I didn't want to add more writing because I knew that he would be resistant to that. So I don't know that I would do that that way every single time. It was for that particular child at that particular time. But it was also really handy because then when it was time for him to pick the poem he wanted to memorize for the next term, he already knew what his favorites were. So he could go through his journal and look through his favorites and choose which poem he wanted to memorize for the subsequent term, if that makes sense. So that's kind of how we started it. So then that same journal the next year in seventh grade became both a place to stash poetry and a place to start commonplacing. And we we did it every day because at that point I completely cut copy work and this replaced it. So it was replacing something that was already happening every day. That's why I was comfortable doing it every day. And the main difference was, first of all, that he was going to keep it because copy work was always thrown away. And then second of all, that he had complete license before with copy work. Sometimes he picked his own, but sometimes I picked it. And all I did to implement that was that at the bottom of the spreadsheet, there was a checkbox. There were five little checkboxes, one for each day that said commonplace he would just check it when he did it. And then at the end of the week, we would go through and see what he had picked out. And and I was trying to come in place from the same books when I was pre-reading. So it was kind of fun because we could actually compare. And sometimes I would have picked the same thing as him, which was interesting. <laughs> For us, what it looks like on a weekly basis is just that like he just does it from whatever book he wants, for whatever reason he wants, it's his thing. And then so in the beginning, there was a lot of accountability, we checked in every week. Now it doesn't happen nearly as often, because it's his habit, and it's his thing. And I made sure that he knew that commonplacing is a very long tradition, that so many of these great intelligent writers throughout history have kept commonplace books. I wanted him to see like his as inheriting this practice from from great people. And so at some point in seventh or eighth grade, I pulled him aside. I mean, I found online some examples of commonplace books from famous people or whatever. And I let him see that. And so anyway, so now it's just a habit. And my next child is starting sixth grade this year. So I haven't done anything. I am going to start the poetry journal thing with her. And I think I am actually going to do the cut and paste thing with her. But I'm pretty sure with my third child, she'll be ready to actually handwrite it because she was born with a pencil in her hand. But they don't all come that way. (laughs) Um, anyway, so for us, it's like a sixth grade transition year, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or at least sometime in middle school. Yes. What about you, Pam? Um, well, my oldest is going into sixth grade this coming year. Right. And um, commonplacing is something we're going to do in community with our school A group. And so I am, it's something they're going to do mostly through literature class. I haven't thought about, I'm teaching history. I haven't thought about having them add. I'm in charge of kind of like the book of centuries. Um <laughs> And so Mary's kind of doing the commonplace book. Mm-hmm. So Mary, my podcast manager, is also the uh, the upper school teacher for literature at our co-op. And so I'm looking at her requirements right now. Each week, she is asking them to add two to three quotes to their commonplace book. And so she's having them get either, she said it could be a spiral notebook or it could be a nicer bound journal. She, she didn't really have any specifications as to which, you know, composition book. It was up to the child. And she wants them to add two to three quotes weekly from the literature that they're reading. And she says at times they're going to be able to choose freely. And then other times they're going to be asked specifically to look for quotes related to a particular theme. 
So, yeah. and then she lists out this long list, like quotes that are beautiful, ones that contain imagery or descriptive language, quotes that point out of virtue. So she has kind of a long list of suggestions to help them out, quotes that remind you of another book you've read. And so she has that. And then the second part of this is each week, she says, come to class prepared to give a declamation about one of your commonplace quotes. And she breaks it down to him and says, you will read your quote aloud to the class. You're going to give context for your quote, who said it and or what was happening, and then tell why you picked this quote for your commonplace book. So that's what we'll be doing next mm. year. And I can come and report to you a year from now how it went. Yeah, I like how that's phrased. That's what I'm playing. I have a literature class that I'm going to start teaching. And that sounds similar to what I was thinking, but I hadn't fully um, prepared exactly what I was going to assign. But that sounds like a well, great Well, for a small to- fee, I would be happy to share these lesson plans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to tell you, I really, really like that uh, only because I noticed that as we were first introducing everything, the act of comparing our quotes. So we maybe both commonplace out of the same book. And so then we talked about what we chose and why. I felt like that was very instrumental in helping my child quickly mature into a real commonplacer because he was seeing someone else's and understanding why they were doing it and then kind of rethinking about why he chose Mm -hmm. what he chose. And that just felt very powerful at the time. And so I've sort of made a commitment inside that no matter what, I really want to make sure I do that in seventh grade with each of my children because it was so good for my oldest. That's pretty much the same kind of thing to have all the students in the class stand up and share their quote and explain why it's the same kind of thing. I think they're really going to mature into being true commonplace keepers by that. And I like your idea of the themes. That's, it, also. that's Mary. That's not me. So, yeah. Get yeah. Words too. Sorry. I like Mary's <laughs> idea. <laughs> good job, Mary. Mm. <laughs> Well, and I have a guest post at Simply Convivial, too, written by Kathy Weitz. Mm, we'll have to link to that. Yes, because she, she, her kids are graduated, and she did com- she taught commonplacing to her kids, and she still teaches it to, um, I think it's a school day group co-op that she's a part of. Yeah, Kathy has yeah. a school day group. And so she has, she includes pictures of her kids' commonplace journals and talks about, you know, the philosophy and the why you're doing it and the basics But she includes, you know, sometimes the real life version of what happens doesn't really line up (laughs) with our grand idea (laughs) of what it is. She just shares that right out and gives you the examples and says, you know, it's still a good thing to be doing, even when it doesn't fully reach the ideal of what you might want. Yeah, I think that's a good reminder, just to remove the perfectionism and take it as it comes. I agree. Well, I think we're about done then. So thank you both for coming. And Thanks this for was having so fun. Me. I feel like the gang's back together again. <laughs> <laughs> now to go practice some things because we've started That's school. Right. Yeah, good luck with that. Pam <laughs> and I are going to go get a tan now. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, you guys could go talk, talk philosophy. I've got to go do something. <laughs> That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast. We would love for you to keep those five-star reviews coming. That's how we get the word out about the show. Of course, it also helps when you tell your friends, either in person or by sharing our shows on Facebook. So go ahead and do that too. 
Speaking of Facebook, Misty might not be there, but Scalay Sisters is. If you haven't already, head on over and look us up and like our page. We'd love to have you. And that's where we make a lot of announcements. Plus, you get to know cool stuff like which episodes we've recorded or which guests we've confirmed for the show. We make small talk over there, I guess you could say. Misty and I will be back in the next episode discussing multum non multa. That's a Latin motto meaning much, not many. What exactly does it mean? How do we reconcile this ancient educational advice with Charlotte Mason's advice to read broadly on many subjects? Don't miss it because you might be surprised by the answer. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone, so open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. I just want to jump to the question, the answer. Well, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Which is totally not true, because then I'll spend the rest of the episode backtracking. So anyway... (laughs) Sorry, I was imagining us creating some sort of educational GPS system. (laughs) (laughs) Colder, colder, you're getting colder. Oh, hotter, warmer. (laughs) No, mine just says recalculating all the time. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's hilarious.